Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. So over the holiday break, I visited Strasbourg, which truly has the most beautiful Christmas decorations I have ever seen. It was like being inside of a snow globe. I mean, it was just like super beautiful. Uh, But while I was there, I had the chance to visit a couple of Alsatian wineries, including one called Kleinkenneck. And while tasting through their different vintages of the Zotzenberg Grand Cru Silvaner, this wine writer's name kept coming up. And so I was like, I got to get to know this guy. Who is this, you know, wine blogger that everyone in Alsace knows? And his name is David Nielsen. So I hit him up and I was like, bro, we got to get you on the pod. So that's where we are now. David Nielsen is my guest today. He blogs about natural wine in Alsace and maintains the popular IG account back in Alsace. He also helps manage the wine app Raison, which is the best way to find out about natural wine bars throughout Europe. Uh, Last month, David and I cracked open a couple bottles of Eric Cam's Riesling and discussed the new wave of producers in the region. Here's David. I'm always aware of my Scottish accent and how I need to kind of tone it down and speak speak slowly. I've I've spoken lots of conferences and things, but I was listening to Jim Kerr, who's the lead singer from Simple Minds the other night. He's got a slightly more Glasgow accent than me, but he came across really well, you know, I was like, he sounded as if he was, knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Do you get a lot of feedback from people in Strasbourg about it? I imagine it bleeds through into I French. Not, well, I usually, I, usually, I usually speak French, you know, so people often think I'm Spanish or Italian rather than anything else, which is interesting. Interesting is like a very like neutral word. I mean, generally, do you see it being a positive thing for your accent to come across as Spanish or? Uh, yeah, I think, it's, <laughs> I think it's kind of funny. Like, well, I don't want my accent to come across as British. You know, I don't, I don't know anybody knows what a, fr- a Scottish French accent is. What's interesting is, is a winemaker in Alsace and his wife's Scottish. And when he speaks English, he speaks with a Scottish accent. Yeah. Accents are funny. They're a funny thing. I mean, I remember being super self-conscious about having an American accent whenever I would travel, Mm -hmm. um, especially when I would be speaking in Spanish. And then I realized at a certain point, like some people kind of find it sexy. A lot of people don't, but kind of just own it. Right. Our, our youngest just moved back. She's been in London studying and working for five years, most of the time. And, she, you know, she lived in the U.S. for 16 years and she really developed a London accent. <laughs> uh, but she just moved back to or she just moved to New York on Sunday. So I'll see it. Oh, be interesting to see how quickly her London accent disappears and she takes on a New York accent. She's a bit of a chameleon. It's one of those things I think that like you end up having certain words that are triggers where you'll say a word with a particular accent, but then another word with a different one. I saw you post a photo earlier today uh, that you were sipping on some vino yourself. Yeah, we, we drank a bottle of the uh, silver, the Eric Cam Silvina last night with, with dinner once we got back from Eric. Sick. Yeah. How was it? It was lovely. It was it's it's oxidative. It's um two years souvoir, you know, so it's two years. Oh wow. Yeah. Hmm. So it was kind of mildly oxidative, but I'll probably change it quite a bit in the bottle. But I like Sylvaner and I like all these different treatments of Sylvaner. So it was interesting to taste. It had all these kind of notes out, you know, oxidative notes, but it was it was it had a kind of sharpness as well. Oxidative for me can be kind of quite round and horizontal, it's kind of sharpened up. But the silverners from uh, the Grand Cru Frankstein, so it's it's you know it comes, it brings a lot of acidity with it. So, yeah, it was good. We had it with shukrut, so it was interesting. Ooh, yum! <laughs> Lots of shukrut. 
the bottom of the food pyramid of Alsace, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm flying into Biarritz and then I'm going to skedaddle to uh, San Sebastian. Okay. They, the big uh, like annual holiday, their equivalent of Bastille Day or 4th mm-hmm. of July is on Thursday. It's called El Dia de San Sebastian or the La Tamborada. And it's this large party with live music that continues for 24 hours straight. Lots of like percussive instruments. Mm-hmm. And I've never had the chance to be there for it. Um, and, and I've good, always wanted to. And it's good so. to go with COVID, so there's no restrictions. <laughs> yeah. I was able to secure a reservation at Recondo, which I don't know if you've ever been there, but has always been on my like dream list of... Yeah, I haven't been there. No. I, know, yeah. I know Sebastian, San Sebastian quite well. We actually have an apartment in Beirut, so I was just down there a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, and, amazing. Uh, the kids often fly London. The London kids fly Ryanair um, or EasyJet <laughs> London Beirut, so... I usually then take the, the bus to the downtown, which costs a euro and is faster than the taxi. And the times we've been to San Sebastian, we take the bus as well, which is good fun. You know? That was my game plan. Since yeah. I'm flying in and out of Biarritz, yeah. um, I was just going to take the the bus or something across the border. But I should then hit you up for a couple of recommendations for where to drink in, in Biarritz. Biarritz. Yeah. Yeah. One of my favorite places is just sold in this changing hands, but there's some great restaurants in beer, right? So I'll give you a list. So here I was thinking I was going to chat with you about Strasbourg, but now we're getting into the natural wine yeah, bars. This is pretty hot natural wine wise. How long are you going to be there? Are you staying there for a night? Oh, I'm going to be in beer. for at least a couple of days. Okay. And then I'll be in San Sebastian for two or three days and might do a day trip over to a Bilbao. I reached out to a couple different cider producers that I worked with back in the States, um, a couple of different Chocolina producers that are veer a little more on the natural side. Um, I don't know if you've had like Gorondona before, but they make a still red Chocolina that is like super purizenic. You can really see the relationship to Cabernet Franc with yep. Andorivi Beltza, that variety. So really great wines. It's like if Chinon were along the Bay of Biscay. Well, the places in Beirut, uh, the one that just changed hands, they're good friends. I actually had coffee with them when I was there. And after, they just sold the, re- the restaurant just was signed off that the day I was there. I was there about three weeks ago. Yeah, they, they had a wine fair. They're kind of making noises that they're going to organize something else, either in Beirut or, or Saint-Jean-de-Luz. In those areas, because I'm not as familiar with them, for the most part, it's a seasonal thing, right? People go for the summer. So what's the vibe like then? Is it like more? Yeah, it can be pretty quiet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that was my experience in call... Normandy. Like it was just a ghost town in a lot yeah, of these they places. Be, well, that will not be like a ghost town because there's a lot of young kids living there. Right? And since COVID as well, people who can work remotely are people who have just had to like a change of idea. Yeah. Why do I need to live in Paris if I can live in beer? It's actually called beer. It's the arrondissement 21. For Paris, you know, because it's like... Oh, really? And in Biarritz, uh, just for information, there's a tax d'habitation, which hardly anybody else pays for in France. If, you you know, you, you pay... A, uh, there's two different property taxes in France. And Biarritz insist on people with a property there paying a tax d'habitation, even if they don't live there. So, because there's so many second second homes. Mm, We've got a yeah. small apartment, which is in the same street as a market, two blocks from the beach. We bought it 20. 22 years ago and we've kind of done it up it's pretty cool but um yeah it's a great place there's three restaurants that are absolutely fabulous there's one that's a bit more classical and, and good and there's one which is just opened which is really weird i had a dinner there as well so they 
but they're all international wine. All these restaurants are international. Yeah, I was going to say, do they focus on wines from like that area of the Pyrenees? Is it a yeah. lot of like Urologi or is it like they're fucking around with stuff from yeah. all over France and Spain and well, wherever? Well, there's not a lot of good wine from Urologi. You know, Urologi, the village itself or the canton itself is like 95% bio in terms of like it's, it's farming, it's sheep, cheese and wine farming. And there's a couple of good producers down there. If you check Raisin, I think there's like three or four producers in, on the French side and a couple on the Spanish side. I think I've been to them all. Um, but the, so that's it. Then they go further afield into, even into, in Bordeaux, you know, there's a couple of, a bunch of good uh, wine producers, actual wine producers in Bordeaux, but they bring in stuff from all over France. I got to know them because of the Alsace connection, you know, the, Cherry DB, I've always got uh, Jean-Pierre Riche, uh, um, they've not got Cam, they've got the Gup the Brothers, you know, they've got the Ken, a whole bunch of wines. I, I organised a tasting at Cherry BB end of 2018 of the Christ, Christoph Lindenlaub and Jean-Marc Dreher wines just for people in the industry down there. You know, I was going to be down there and I talked to Christoph and Jean-Marc and we ran a, a full taste in like 14, 15 wines from each domain, which was really good. And who showed up to that? Was it a lot of just like locals or oh, were yeah, they people was, that were on vacation? Local, or? Basically local yeah. restaurant owners, cafe owners, wine bar owners. And there's mm. quite a good network down there. You know, they're kind of organized. This is not talking about Alsace, but they, they bring in wine. You know, they, they, they actually bring in wine to one or two points and then distribute, uh, you know, between themselves. And mm. Even a couple of these guys are not really into natural wine. There's still a good, a good, um, you know, good network. I'm thinking in French, that kind of helps things out. And all the kind of chefs have worked in different restaurants. There's also a fabulous little place in Guterie, uh, which is down the coast from Biarritz. A nice restaurant um, called Providence or Providence. And there's a Japanese uh, kind of grocery store down there, which is like the, one of the most zen spaces I've ever been in, in my life. So it's a, a Japanese grocery store <laughs> in the <laughs> in middle of yeah. French Basque country. I mean, that seems I wild. Mean, the guy's Basque and his, his wife's or his partner's um, Japanese. I feel like there's a lot of like similarities, though, in terms of like flavor profiles between those two places, right? Well, I, I don't know how much pork the Japanese eat, you know, there's a lot. Oh, they love that tonkatsu, baby. I, I mean. What's good about these uh, restaurants is you basically the one I was at for the first night I opened was, it's called Caro Nordfiskbar. The woman, uh, Josephine, her mother's a Danish, so they spend a lot of time in Denmark when she was a kid. So there's a kind of Danish influence and Florian's actually from the Basque region. But you basically eat what came out of the sea that day. You know, it's like, it's like, what's the menu? Yeah. The they make it up, whatever they get from their suppliers. It's fabulous. So there's a lot of seafood. There's another two restaurants run by the same guys, Epoch, E-P-O-Q, which is in the center of Biarritz. And um, I can't remember what that one's called now. Uh, just down the coast, which is difficult to get to. I, I was there the, the last time. I'll, I'll give you all this information. But There's the, always an inverse relationship between how hard it is to get to and how yeah, delicious no. it is, right? Well, this place, when I'm down there, you know, I, I usually try to take the bus or walk everywhere. So I took the <laughs> bus to this place, which is in uh, Bida, which is just south of Biarritz. And I told the guys, yeah, I came down, I, 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 I came down in the bus. I said, you came down in the bus? Nobody's ever come here in the bus before. <laughs> you have to take the bus and then walk for about a mile or something. I feel like that's fine on the way there. But if you come back belly full of wine and food... Yeah. Kind of stumbling your way home, riding the bus home. I mean, well, but I'm wild. there. I'm on holiday, basically. You know, <laughs> You've got this big Atlantic Ocean. It was a nice day. It was cool. Like wines. This is fun. <laughs> this is meant to be. You're meant to be. You know, you're meant to be having fun with this stuff. Look at Eric Cam. You know. Yeah.
No, I think that's the biggest challenge, right? Is that inevitably people want to find their own little niche within this world. And mm-hmm. sometimes you're right. It's just fucking have fun with it. Like, yeah, sure. And I, and I'm, I'm so helpful, you know, uh, in Instagram this week, I've seen photographs I've taken or the guy who worked or who works with me take all over the place. I never, you know, dig people up about their using our photos. I mean, it's, if it's out there on social media, for me, it's like free game. People can use whatever <laughs> they want, you know. But it's different, might be different for, for you who's making a living out of this. I'm just doing it as kind of fun. And I've, got no, I've got no issues with that. And also, you know, you get a buzz. Today I was contacted by an importer in Belgium who wants to use some photos if I've got the right kind of photos for him. And he called me the Alsace Oracle, you know, I mean, in the natural wine space. And it's kind of funny because yesterday, one of the California guys was calling me the Alsace Sherpa because you know, <laughs> when they're here, back in the state, our house, and I Sherpa them around. So it's kind of funny having this bit of a, a reputation, which, you know, I'm kind of a modest guy. It's kind of a bit of an, an ill-founded reputation in, in, in most cases. But it also speaks to like how few people there are really dialed into this area, yeah. right? I mean, there's like, what, two or three books out there on yeah. Alsace? And yeah. even those are hard to get your hands on. And when you read most either criticism or writing about Alsace, yeah. it's always about the same, like, three or four big producers where it's basically the same story just rehashed over and over again about like the history, the geopolitical leanings of the area and all that other shit. I judge, I judge wine books and what they say about Alsace. And when, if you read what they write about Alsace, I kind of know exactly what they know and what they don't know. (laughs) What do they talk about here? Zindunbrech, Andre Ostertag, and I mean, they make good wine in that classic style, but you know, it's kind of so it's so safe. And I think if this is what they're talking about, Alsace, I'm not going to believe much what they're telling me about areas I don't know about, yeah. you know? No, for sure. I, I think that's the biggest challenge though, right? Like, or one of the many challenges is that these big producers just suck up so much oxygen in the States yeah. where some of these smaller producers, if they're repped by a very tiny distro and they're only available in two or three markets, oh. It's just, where do you find that balance between kind of ubiquity and awareness? Because a guy like me that ran a bar in Houston, there's only so much that comes to Texas and of the stuff that comes to Texas, you know, how much of it is accessible to a tiny little wine bar, you know, as opposed to a bigger account. Yeah, um, it's right. The the, the concept of allocations, you know, where these allocations go to distributors or to importers and distributors, and every time it gets it gets diluted, the allocation is delayed. Doug Reck, the guy who runs Real Wine Fair in, in London and is involved in uh, the Cave de Pirene, he brought a little book out, like a wine glossary for natural <laughs> wine a couple of years back. I'll send you a copy. I've got a few copies. Yeah. I've not seen it. And he's got a verb called Copenhagen. And Copenhagen, the verb Copenhagen is when a Jura producer sends your allocation to Copenhagen. Ah, there we go. I literally was talking to a Parisian uh, restaurateur. I was talking to the guys behind Rigamarole, Robert and Jessica, yeah. and they said the same shit happens to them. As a Paris restaurant, they lose out on allocations of shit to other markets. I'm going to call up Rene Redzepi, get him on the line, yeah. chew him out for fucking taking my Ganapod <laughs> or LeBay or whoever the yeah, fuck else, it, some Octava. You know much more about the end, that end of it than myself, but... um importer in, in Holland contacted me yesterday to contact an Alsace producer direct because he's not getting any joy from his importer in, in Holland. 
and he, he wants, he says, I'll, I'll drive down and pick this stuff up myself. You know, it's like he loves his wine and it, it just disappears. So it's kind of funny how, and that kind of distance, you know, it's a four hour drive, you can work around these things. But I wonder also, like, is it that producers in these like more Northern European countries just like pay a hundred percent upfront in cash? Whereas like Western Europe slash the US, it's like, oh, we'll pay you after 90 days or when we get around to it, you know? And then a lot of winemakers like Eric, Eric, Eric Cam last night, he's making 40,000 bottles. He's not got any wine, you know, it's all shifts. It's like, it just disappears. He actually gave me a, a bottle of some interesting stuff from a couple of years back. But uh, he said, you know, it's kind of funny how this whole natural wine market, international market works. When, when I was there, the first time I was at Eric's was 2014 or 15. He was uh, exporting 30%. He's up to 75, 80% now. And he says, I don't need to do anything. It just kind of like, it just, you know, it just goes. I don't even need to leave my my farm. You know, he said, I can continue being a peasant, a paysan, which is a farmer. <laughs> and it suits me fine. I don't want to have to go to Copenhagen or, you know, New York or Houston or something. I mean, if you can sell out of your entire, you know, supply, yeah. just replying to a couple of emails and... Yeah. all the better <laughs> yeah i can tell i, I can tell you uh, you know stories about that as well but some uh, you know some importers import a lot from single producers in alsace and it kind of was that jean-marc dreyer's um at the end of harvest and he had like nine pallets ready to go to japan and i just like oh i don't know how many how many bottles are in nine pallets but just like a big a big selling on and then we had a guy called y- yannick uh, Merkert here a new wine producer a new wine, you know, he's, he's in his sec- second vintage uh, at this table uh, last Thursday or Friday at lunchtime. And he's held, oh, he sold all his wine to Korea. Just kind of like the whole, they just took everything, you know. So he's only making 12,000 bottles to start with, but it's all gone. What does that say, though? I mean, it, it's funny because you look at Alsace and whether you're talking about like a producer like Valentin Zuslin, where it's 13 generations or even a big one like Trimbach, right? We're talking double digit generational, you know, heritage at these wineries and then you also have these young guns where they started making wine two years ago mm-hmm. just a very different kind of ethos i would imagine there's a there's a mix there but that's an interesting uh, point actually because last night when we we're at eric cams which is i don't know 12th generation uh who i was with said um um what's it like you know being the 12th or the 13th generation winemaker um, on this domain and he said you know I never, never really think about that I feel as if you know I've just started and I'm free I can do what I want but um, the a lot of these guys in the natural wine space which is a space I know about where there's a lot of startups you know the, what, the most famous ones Catherine Reese, who started uh, six or seven years ago now um, you know she started with uh, a hectare and a half she's up to I don't know six or seven hectares now a lot of these startups start renting um, parcels someplace and then they kind of just build on it. And a lot of them go through the, you know, the 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 kind of old school natural winemakers. You know, people have worked at Schuler's or Patrick Mayer's. A whole bunch of people come out of Patrick Mayer's and Schuler's, Jean-Pierre Freak, um, uh, Christian Biener. There's people making wine over all over the world and all over Alsace that have come from these places. And a, a lot of these producers, Philippe Bronze, another one who I just saw last week as well, when they have like a, st- a stagiaire or someone working for them for, their, for a year, they let them make a cuvee themselves, you know, and they're responsible for it. And someone like Patrick or Philippe kind of stand back and let them get on with this dirty work and 
figure it out themselves. So I think that helps. But there's there's such there's such a, a there's a there's probably six or seven startup domains in Alsace. One of the one of the really successful ones is Lambert Spielman, who's I think this is his third vintage twenty one. Yeah, it's his third vintage. He worked at um, Patrick Mayer's and uh, Christoph Lindenlaub, and he rented a you know half a hectare to start with. He's probably up to about three or four hectares now. He's not any wine; he just kind of goes like that. He doesn't have a website. He said the only piece of publicity marketing has been on Instagram, and it's all kind of gone from there. <laughs> and Instagram's not that really well developed in France as well, but it is well developed in the wine space in terms of. Uh, you know, importers, distributors, bars, restaurants, that, that functions really well. And a lot, a lot of the Alsace young producers haven't figured that out. There's, you know, France is, France is kind of sad. It got stuck on Facebook and it hasn't moved to the, you know, the labyrinthal corridors of Facebook where you don't know what's going on or what's happening. That That's the biggest bane of my existence when I'm trying to make a reservation for like Bistro Paul Bert and I click on the link where it's like visit website and then you're just taken to a Facebook page. I'm like, great, cool. All I want is a phone number. That's all I'm looking for. If we, if we take a big step back and we just look at how the fuck did you find yourself writing about Alsace? Like, how did that happen in the first place? Yeah, well, that that's, well, I'm an IT guy, you know, so I've been in technology. I was there when basically things, you know, when the, when the internet started, I was running networks. For it was you and Al Gore sitting in the room. Yeah, well, kind of like I, I, I was working for someone else and, you know, it was, it was kind of interesting. So I was always switched on to the technology side, but that's an aside. I, in Edinburgh, where I, where I lived in Edinburgh, there was like a culture of, um, there's a, a good relationships with Bordeaux for centuries. And there's a great supply of like, you know, uh, bourgeois growth Bordeaux or, or third class Bordeaux in Edinburgh that weren't cheap. And they're kind of like, you know, at that point in the 80s, 90s, they're like Finnish interest in Bordeaux. And I kind of liked that. I didn't, it was pre the, you know, Parker days. And it was interesting. And then we moved to Alsace for work, for technology work. I was into wine and I was drinking wine I didn't really like. So I decided to, by chance, I stumbled across Jean-Pierre Freak, Patrick Mayer, and I decided I kind of like this interest in wine. You know, it was just like, an, a, I don't know, a taste thing. I like to taste. Well, those are wildly different styles of wine to go from drinking Bordeaux to drinking Alsace. I mean, that had to be in a major mindfuck. So, yeah, so you're living in Edinburgh where you, only, you could probably only buy two or three Alsace domains at that point. But there was tons of this Bordeaux wine. And we're in a couple of wine clubs <laughs> and you know, university professors who had access to interest in Bordeaux wines as well. But living here in Alsace... You know, there's that. There, you're, uh, li we lived in Strasbourg. All the restaurants have got you know a heavy Alsace wine wine list, so you kind of get into it. And then the friends you meet, everybody's drinking Alsace wine. They're trying to discover it. But then also one of the things that clicked me into um, like in the natural wine space is when I got to meet some of these guys. I liked them. You know, they were nice people. I was always into or well, since you know, so I was 16 or 17 into like organic food and eating properly and not eating you know, uh, chemical rubbish. And I liked these guys, they had a nice attitude, you know, people like Jean-Pierre Freak or Patrick Mayer, who I met before, I just liked their kind of attitude. And some of the guys like um, uh, Jean-Marie Bechtold, who is not a natural wine producer, but he's, he runs uh, but he's biodynamic, so they're like nice people. They're kind of like, you know, their their hearts are in the right place. And I kind of got to know these people and got to drink the wines. But one of the 
one of the, the main reasons in terms of like discovering this wine was the the big European biofare, which was in Rufac for years and years. It got switched to Colmar about six, 10 years ago because it got so big. This was like, a, you know, one of the biggest, probably still is the biggest biofares in, in Europe. And it's got everything. It's got wine, food, you know, water diviners, you know, kids roundabouts made of wood and stuff. And the wine section that I really kind of got into, and I, did, I only discovered a couple of years ago, I was drinking natural wine at the end of the 90s in Rufac. Nobody was calling it natural wine, you know. These guys were calling it, you know, organic wine or bio wine. So, and I kind of liked it as well. And we bought we bought a lot of, a lot of it, and I kind of liked it. And then, how 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 did I get into writing? There was such a dearth of information, as you mentioned earlier about Alsace in general, and often it was just a couple of the big well-known domains uh, that were mentioned in books. There's a Tom Stevenson book, which was published in 92, which is about 700 pages, which is full of information. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know Tom Stevenson's writing, but very kind of opinionated, dismissive about some stuff. But <laughs> That's the best kind of writing. I mean, honestly, you want to yeah. get, at least I want to get some like real information, not just like something off a Wikipedia page or something. Yeah. You well, know? he's 700, 800 pages of, you know, packed data. So it's a, it's a fabulous book. It, you know, it's 1992. So the, the wine world's changed a lot since then. And then I had this idea to set up a website, um, probably, you know, 2008, 2009. And because I was doing a heavy duty day job, it just took, you know, six or seven years to get into it. And it's still not good. You know, it's still not up to speed. I, you know, I've got big plans and big ideas for it. And hopefully I'll get around to them this year where I'm, you know, I've, I've packed in my job. Hey, the other thing I like about it is for some bizarre reason, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm here now, I'm sitting in the Alsace wine region, I'm touching a table that's made from um, 100-year-old foods from Bruno Schuller, and uh, I'm here, you know, I'm, I'm in the middle of all this stuff. I drive past Patrick Mayer's, uh, Louis Morer's, you know, almost every day. I kind of pop into the courtyard if I see them hanging around. I'm kind of part of the scene, and it's easy, it's easy to be interested in write about it and get involved in it. One of, the, one of the interesting things is, I think I said before, that I feel like I'm outside looking in and I'm also inside looking out. So it gives me even a liberty here. And I, and I don't run a business. I, I'm not a winemaker that needs to make his business work or the, you know, winemakers that need to make their business work or, you know, wine shops or restaurants don't want to spend their time writing about something else or someone else. Whereas I'm fine, you know, I'm fine writing about the whole spectrum of natural wine and Alsace. But I mean, like in terms of the outsider looking in gradually, I mean, at this point, you've been writing about Alsace for a while. Do you, do you feel like you still have that ability to kind of remove yourself from the bubble that you're in? Do you feel it when you travel to other regions? Like, like, I don't know. I would think that after this much time, it's hard to kind of untether yourself and maintain that objectivity. No? No, I know. No, yeah, but, uh, yeah I'm, I'm Scottish. I'm not French. I'm not from Alsace. You know, I, like I'm, I'm, I don't I have a French passport, but I, I, I don't feel French. I feel Scottish. Yeah. Um, for Before I used to travel a lot, you know, on Thursday, I'm going to London and I'll see people in the wine world in London. Some of them are French. And they have a different, they have an outside view in Alsace as well. So it's easy to, it's easy to be aligned with what their view is in Alsace. My network includes a lot of people, importers, distributors, restaurant wine bar owners, you know, from uh, Tokyo to San Francisco. You know, it kind of like covers the world, you know, I've not got anybody in Hawaii or Tahiti. 
Um, and Not these, yet. These, these people, even though some of them have worked in LSS, have this view, and, and I kind of kind of easy. It's easy to align with that. It's easy. It's easy to be outside where they where they have a viewpoint or they have a need or some in, an interest looking in. I, 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 I very quickly caught on to that um, side of things. I kind of resist trying to be too inside here as well. Even yeah. even the. Um, the, the the salon the wine fair um, organ, um, um, you know one of the organizers for the salon de van Lieb. and the salon de van Lieb is it's every two years it's probably going to go every year uh, from this year it started in 2008 so it's been yeah so this is this will be edition eight that we're planning for this July but that only has four Alsace producers and about 50 60 producers mostly from France Italy Spain you know mm. um, we tried to keep it not from across the Rhine in the east, it's, it's kind of mostly Latin producers. But that helps you, gives you a, a, a pretty good, um, you know, grounding in non-Alsace uh, wines, winemakers from non-Alsace regions, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I think the prism through which so many U.S. drinkers see Alsace is like, oh, this is a French region that works with German varieties. And there's a lot of interesting soil types, and it's kind of left at that a lot of these producers aren't readily represented or they're not represented with the full breadth of their portfolio, yeah. you know? Well, that's right. And that's an interesting point as well, because I've had discussions with outside producers who uh, don't want to be, don't want to have an import or bring in, you know, a bunch of outside producers because they produce 14 or 15 wines. They can give you, you know, yeah. they can give you seven varieties, you know, different years different mixtures exactly these are my 17 different sylvaners <laughs> and i have these four pinot gris yeah, yeah. and yeah, yeah yeah no for sure but, that, but that's kind of um going off at a tangent just to give you some examples is a guy in new york who's like a super bruno schuler fan he actually bid for bruno schuler pinot noir wines on a, you know what do you call it like an a, a web auction a couple of weeks back yeah you know so you have these enthusiasts I, my, my feeling is that people really, you know, they're in, people in, into natural wine, if they're going to Ruby Wines in San Francisco or they're going to the Ten Bells or June Wine Bar, they kind of understand natural wines. And what they're seeing is Alsace in a different, a different way. Alsace, in the last five or six years, a lot of these guys are, are producing, you know, macerations, which is kind of orange wine, interesting to drink. Um, so you're getting away from this varietal uh, thing, you know, so... Yeah, a lot of co-ferments I'm seeing. Yeah. Even Eric uh, um, Cam's Riesling is called Fusion, you know? So it's like he's... he's got yeah, for listeners at home that don't know, we are drinking um, a Riesling 2020, and maybe you can explain why it's called Fusion. Yeah, well, yeah. so they, I was, by pure coincidence, I was at Eric Cam's last night uh, to taste, to do a tasting. I've not been there for a couple of years, and I ran into Eric a couple of weeks ago at a party. Um, so it's called, this wine's called Fusion, uh, and it's, a, it's an Alsace Riesling, so it's a kind of varietal wine, but the Riesling comes from two different soil types around about Eric Cam's village. So it comes from a, a, an, an Argile sort, a clay soil type, and it comes from a granite soil type. And the Fusion, the grant, the, so he, he actually, he actually uh, ferments them and raises them for the year, and he mixes them just at the last moment before the, meso, the, the bottling. And he likes that fusion of the different Riesling types, which are kind of, if you want, if you believe in terroir, very terroir driven, one coming from 
uh, kind of alluvial type of plain low down and one coming from sloped granite production. And they give, they give two different wines and bringing them together, you get um, a more kind of gourmandise. How do you say gourmandise in English? Um, tasty. Tasty. Uh, the, the kind of tastiness of the kind of plain wines with the kind of sharp, uh, lively acidity of the kind of granite grown wine and, and bringing them together. 50-50 mix, so he mixes them 50-50. So there's an example of an Alsace varietal, which I don't think it actually says Riesling on the ball. So. I think it does on the left, right? On the far left part of the label, yeah. it says Natur at the yeah, top yeah. and then Riesling. Yeah, you're right. But then, but then at the very bottom, it does say Peugeot, which I don't know. That's not a technical thing, right? I know it says it on a lot of his bottles. Yeah, well, Peugeot, so it just means it's like, you know, it's pure raisin juice. There's nothing added to it. So it's what 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 you what people call a zero zero wine. So there's zero additions in the vineyard and there's zero additions in the cellar for so when I was at the natural wine shop here in Fontainebleau picking up this bottle, I saw another producer that had that new designation, that new classification. The syndicate, the syndicate de Venature. Yeah. So how's that been received? Because I'd never seen it IRL. Okay. I'd never seen it in real life. I mean, the producers that you've talked to, they, they fuck with it. They're, they're down to put it on their label or a lot of them saying that it's a BS design and they're not, they're not here for it. Well, there's, there's a mix. Um, uh, and there's a kind of like spectrum of reactions to that. I've talked to the, some of the founders, Christian Biner, who's uh, an Alsace producer, He's one on their kind of central committee. And um, there's quite a few non-natural wine producers that are producing wine um, with the syndicate of Nature because it's actually to do with the cuvee. It's actually to do with that wine rather to do with the whole kind of like space. Okay. So they're not actually looking at vineyard. They're not actually looking at a winemaker's range of wine, a domain. They're actually looking at individual cuvees. But I, I think it's cool. And some winemakers think it's cool because it does give you a guarantee. It's a, it's a legally French accepted French term. And there's there's a kind of um, an affiliation going on internationally now as well, where they're in contact with winemaker groups from other from Spain, from uh, Belgium, from Germany. And it gives you a, a guarantee that comes from an organic vineyard. And it has um, minimal intervention. I think the only intervention they allow 20 or 30 milligrams of sulfur. And it tells you if it's got zero or if it's one of the 20 or 30 categories. Mm. And I, one, of the, one of the reasons I like it is it helps people. You know, there's reasons, you know, I think reasons I'm more negative about it. But it helps people. It's like a bridge. So people who want to get into, into making more natural wine cuvies, they've got a, a kind of control and a bridge that's well accepted for them to kind of move into the natural wine space. There's other, there's other wine producers I know who don't want to have anything to do with it. But, you know, they're, they're fine that it's been done and people are participating in it and they think, they think it's a positive thing. They, they don't want to be controlled. You know, some of the, you know, I'll not mention any names, but some of the the key natural wine producers in France are not certified to bio, you know, like because they don't want to get in the whole certification space. Well, I think then it comes down to like a philosophical thing, like why are you making wine this way? It's not. And that's an interesting uh, point as well, you know, because it's like yeah, I'm involved in raisin and raisin. For listeners maybe that aren't familiar with raisin, I mean, I use it, I have it downloaded to my phone, but maybe you can explain briefly what it is and kind of your involvement with it. Yeah, raisin has been going for, I think, four or five years now. And it's an app which is on um, all kind of like, you know, uh, devices that lists natural winemakers and places that sell, uh, have a natural, uh, have a wine list that has, a, has at least 30% natural wine. So restaurants, wine bars, uh, wine shops that have at least 30% natural wine. 
this is the same deal for I think the wine producers as well. And thirty percent of their production needs to be natural, and it it's, it goes by again minimal intervention. They need to be bio in the vineyard or organic in the vineyard, and there's limits on the amount of sulfur. I think it's thirty milligrams that, that raisin accepts, which is the you know one of the standard um, sulfur uh, levels. My 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 level of involvement is kind of minimal at the moment. I've represented raising a bunch of wine fairs on their stand. They were always at Ladive. I remember when I went to Ladive, there yeah. was like a little kiosk. Yeah. So so for, I, I've not represented them. Ladive, I've represented them from San Francisco to Mulu's and different stands and um i still i'm still involved in a lot of the discussions that go on in on in raisin and where they're going but they're becoming more successful in terms of like uh, uh funding it's ad free the they've just brought in around the funding that allows them to hire more people there's only like two or three people work at raisin i'm not one of them um, and also, you know, maintain an independence, so they're not they've not got any pressure from people to, to tell them what to do. They've also the raisins also cottoned on to the the whole um, food uh, access part, so they're focusing a lot more on restaurants and wine bars uh, because that's what people use raisin for. They'll use it almost, in my opinion, less for finding out about a winemaker, but finding where if they're going on holiday, going to San Sebastian, you pull up raisin, you can see where you can get, you know, where you get natural wine. And usually where you get natural wine, if you're interested in natural wine, you're interested in organic food and you're interested in, and that's what comes with it. Where you find natural wine, you find good organic food. Just 100%. I mean, I've got Raison pulled up on my phone right now and I'm in Strasbourg. Yeah, it's about 30 different things <laughs> in Strasbourg. I'm looking at the restaurants that are here recommended. And one that I know is a restaurant that you love that I visited myself is a Pont Corbeau, okay. right? Pont Corbeau, which means in English at the at the, the Corbeau Bridge, at the Bridge of the Crow. This episode is all me mispronouncing French words and you <laughs> correcting me. That, that that's the extent of this episode. And- I, I, mm-hmm. I usually I usually go to Strasbourg every Tuesday uh, to do like, you know, it's this closest city and I've always got stuff to do, you know, like buy shoes, that kind of stuff. Uh, I usually eat the Pont Corbeau on a Tuesday. I didn't today because we had the work going on round about out in the garden today when two guys came around. It's one day they could fit in. But oh, Pont Corbeau, um, I think it's been going for 25 years. Christophe Ant is the owner. Uh, his daughter, Coralie, basically runs the restaurant now. Chris, Christophe still works there. They have, for me, probably the best natural wine, Alsace natural wine list on the planet, you know, in the known universe. It's absolutely fabulous to have like a page of, I don't know, 30 Sylvaners, you know, 30 Pinot Noirs. And that's just what's on the list. If, you, if you're a regular, you know, when I go to Opon Corbeau, I usually ask um, them to just bring us up something that goes with the food we've chosen. And we get a surprise wine brought up from the cellar that's not on the list. So, and, and we should make it clear for listeners at home, this is a very small restaurant, maybe all of 40, 50 seats yeah. inside, very small room kind of wood interiors and on the wall are these like very pornographic drawings of women spread eagle or horses just like getting after it and really amazing traditional Alsatian cuisine accompanied by like you said one of the most amazing 
Alsatian wineless, like, like a super cool joint. I went there twice. I was in Strasbourg for all of five days and I went there two times. I went there for two of my five dinners. So what, what the, the restaurant's called a, a Vinstub, which is like you know, a restaurant that's kind of like, like a wine bar type of restaurant with better food. And uh, it's always packed. And um, what's on the walls, it's kind of, there's also a kind of- a Yeah, do you know the story behind those drawings? So a lot of these drawings are from a, a, a graph, an, an artist called Tommy Ungerer. Who also who also used to work in cinema. He, he, he you know he did the uh, posters, film posters for Stanley Kubrick. Uh, he was you know he's he's got he had, he's illustrated kids books. He has books called. I want to see those kids books. He had why? Well, yeah, I want to. If you go to his museum, there's like a floor which is you know a kids floor. There's a no more adult floor, and there's a kind of like the places <laughs> in between. But one of my favorite posters is for. I think it's for Beck's beer, which is on the back wall, which was a small, a very small poster that was done for Beck by Ungerer. And the story behind it, as far as I understand and have been told, and it's basically a, a wine harvest scene where there's you know a whole bunch of naked people and the devil uh, playing on his pen pipes and everybody's kind of crushing grapes into <laughs> private parts of their body. And I was told that they this was like a small label for a bottle and. Ungerer got asked to actually do like a, I don't know, like a, a, a two, two meters by one meter size post and offer. But it's quite amazing, yeah. He was on his Diego Rivera mural swag. Getting all <clears throat> out there. But that's another interesting point in terms of like, you know, one of the discussions in the natural wine world is what does, what role the naked women have on natural wine balls? You know, that's kind of an- Are we talking about Vidi Vinci Vinci? Are we talking <laughs> yeah. about those wines? Yeah, and also these wines, and also the Fleur Godard wines, uh, you know, from the, the Put Feministe, uh, Feminist Prostitutes uh, series, where there's quite a few, there's two Alsace, three Alsace wine producers put, uh, participate in that, you know, where they have like uh, naked women or, or, you know, but like feminist versions of India. Yeah, yeah. Julie Balani, I think, also has some more uh, racy imagery on some of her labels. I don't know if you've had the wines from Baja, Mexico, but Beachy. Yeah, yeah I know the guy. Yeah, I know Noel from Beach. Uh, yeah, Noel, my guy. I love Noel. <laughs> I, I, I was down there for harvest in 2018. And wow, uh, yeah. He came to he was at Ladiv um in what 2018 yeah. and then he sent Jan the winemaker up in 2019, right? Yeah, yeah we he, we organized myself and two pals organized a wine fair in San Francisco at the end of 2019, and Noel was there. So he came I up. love Noel. Dude's a fucking animal. I love him. <laughs> like that guy. That guy can party. Yeah, I know. We we had had drinks with him that night, and his importer, um, and also you were with Jose, or were you, were yeah. you with Farm Wine, or uh, yeah. Jose and um, the uh, Macareno Rios wines from Chile. I don't know if you know these ones, Macareno. They were Mm-mm. they were they were there as well. Thomas, a French guy who's married to the Chilean woman, and an interesting story is. Uh, Basil Vorley, who worked for Patrick Mayer, is now living down there with a Chilean woman and he's been working for the Macarena domain and he's just set up his own domain as well. So there's an Alsace uh, imprint footprint in Chile now, which is kind of interesting. Sounds like a field trip is necessary. (laughs) Well, I know, what is it, Roberto Enriquez, I don't know if you've had his wines, Mm -hmm. but he normally shows his wines at Le Penitence. Mm -hmm. I guess one of the first to do it right was uh, Louis Antoine Lute. I don't think he spends that much time in Chile anymore. I think he's pretty much full time back here in France. Yeah. But 
Yeah, I saw I saw him on a, a list of winemakers at a fair coming up soon. I can't remember mm. what it was. Yeah. Do you think like all this talk about fairs? I mean, we were talking about like fairs in Loire, Alsace, the ones that kind of got you into wine in the first place. I mean, for the past like year and a half, right? We haven't really had that many of them. And do you feel like that really has cut into the momentum of a lot of these younger producers? Or do you think that by nature of Instagram and the power of yeah. the internet and social media, fairs are a bonus, but not the necessity that they once were. Yeah. Like, what's the role of them now? That's an interesting question, and I have the right answer for it. So, <laughs> look at you. That's why you're on the pod, baby. That's why we got you here. So, um, you got the answers. So, the just let's take one extreme of that spectrum because there, ha- there has been fairs during COVID, but one extreme of that spectrum is no, no fairs or lockdown. Uh, one of the things during the lockdown in France uh, is that uh, people who were uh, who were working were not locked down. They weren't kind of like they weren't restricted in moving around. So during that period of lockdown, many wine producers were visited by sommeliers, by wine shop owners, by restaurant owners like never before. These guys, mm. these guys had nothing to do. So, uh, they were <laughs> yeah. out visiting winemakers. Uh, Jean-Pierre Riche, one of the, you know, one of my favorite Alsace wine producers in Mitterbergheim, I was down there uh, mm-hmm. last last summer, so it's summer 20, so two summer, two years ago now, and he said he's never had so many industry people come to the domain for tastings. Patrick Mayer said the same same to me as well, it's just like it was non-stop, and, and these people were also interested in um, you know, new producers as well, someone like Lambert Spielman, the Varda, uh, Travis, who bring the guys called Travis, who brings who imports the Lambert Spielman wines. These guys were out visiting and they kind of got to know some of these younger producers because these younger producers had worked with, you know, had done stages at some of these other places. So that's mm-hmm. kind of a that's that was a big positive point. I, I don't think that needs to be kind of recognized. I think that was like such a boost. And with Instagram, these people were visiting these winemakers and they were all posting like crazy you know, on Instagram, which was interesting, which was great. But there were fairs and the, the fair I'm, interest, I'm you know, intrinsically involved in is the Salon de Van Leep. And that fair for us was last 15th and 16th of July. And it was like one of the, it was one of the first fairs out of the COVID lockdown in France, Italy and Spain. And it was like a huge party, you know. People were so relieved, the winemakers, to kind of see their pals, to to go to a salon, to go to a fair, because they hadn't been to any for like you know a year or less than a year, more than a year. And I think that was a big positive thing as well. If have they become um, less important the, in the natural wine space? I don't think so. Maybe there'll be more smaller fairs. It's interesting to see what's happening in Loire at the end of this month. There's like a, a multitude of smaller fairs going on that get, get you know, get under the, the COVID restrictions. And some of the other fairs have been re- reported into end of February, March. So I, I think they're going to kick in again. And international people want to travel and, you know, they've, they've been restricted in moving around. Um, I was texting a couple of people in California who hopefully are going to get to France this summer as well. So the fair that I attended in France back in May was... Um... On the Vines again, that was in Corbier. It was uh, Charlotte from Domaine Sonat yeah. uh, that kind of put it together. And yeah, everyone was just like ready to go. Uh, all the producers were just like cooped up, ready to party. It was a wild showing for sure. I think Oriol Ortigas was the only producer from Spain and everyone else was French, but 
Yeah. Well, it, and it looks like they're, it's kicking in again as well. There's a whole bunch of fairs organised. And Alsace, the fair we're organising the same weekend, or it's like a, going to be a Friday, a Saturday, Sunday, Monday weekend. There's a second fair going on with just Alsace producers. So it's like, a, you know, there's like a demand for it. The Salon de Van Lieb, I think we had 2,000 entries over the two days. So it's kind of, wow. we ran out of glasses. <laughs> So one thing that I do want to ask you is like you you started writing about wine in through a blog and then since then you've had um, I would say a lot of success or at least a really positive response writing about wine on Instagram. And I guess my question to you is like do you feel as though your voice is different in either of those two outlets? Are you able to freak it a little more and be more informal and casual and spontaneous when you do an Instagram post as opposed to you know, sitting down in front of a computer and typing out uh, a blog post. What's interesting is in a blog or in a website, you can still you can still change things. You know, if, if you want to update something or change or change some words or change some text or withdraw a statement, it's easy enough to do. So it's not like a book. You write a book and it's kind of like there forever and ever. So there's a yeah. there's a, a, a a large degree of freedom around about having a blog. A blog means, you know, I was in the in the beginning when the blog word came out, it means a web log. It's like a log of stuff that's on the web. It's like a log of events, you know. So it's kind of like that. What was interesting is the because I had a pretty demanding day job, um, I'm kind of um, not happy with the with the website and the blog because I've not paid enough attention to it. But I'm planning to change that this year, which is my year of freedom. But I'm going to make it, I'm going to take it into a less... Um, you know, for example, there's seven or eight winemaker profiles up there, and they're kind of long. They're like 2,000 words, and they go into mm-hmm. a lot of detail. You know, they explain where the winemaker comes from, the town, et cetera, et cetera. There's a, a domain profile of Catherine Reese there, and someone just sent me an email today saying it's, a, you know, like raving about it. You know, so I wrote, it was written three years ago. But I want to, I want to take these domain profiles into much shorter spaces like 500 600 words and make it much more i get more information and just do a deep dive from time to time you know, i want to do a deep dive on the, on the kind of key producers in Alsace. but the the with the advent of instagram you know, like i don't know how successful people are on instagram but you know i get i get a lot of traffic from um from people that see my instagram posts you know today i've had four or five uh, texts or you know messages on instagram or emails you yourself contacted me via Instagram. You know, it's a fabulous network, and I feel like I'm a resource through Instagram rather than through the website. People pay more attention to the instant feed about some wine. You know, like um, uh, some one of the early wine bars was um, asking me how did the Eric Cam trip go, and asking me what cuvies did I taste last night that they don't get in LA from Ronnie Selects, who brings these wines in. So you, I get, and that helps the network as well. Instagram really is um, what I'm worried about Instagram will become a mess you know it already is changing has changed a lot um, for people that have been using it for five or six years just like myself and and it's kind of you have you have to figure out how to use it uh, to make to make it work properly but I'm, I'm, I like doing Instagram usually every morning I sit down at breakfast and I do a post about something it's much easier now I'm back in Alsace you know I'm living in Alsace than it was when I was in the US it, it's kind of hard to post in every day so but I think in Instagram as well, you can be much more tongue in the cheek. You can, 
you can be quirky. You can go back in and change it as well. If you've said something, you, you don't have to be quite as precious with each and yeah. everything you post. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, I, I never, I never put any restrictions on comments, uh, often comment on, you know, you can not have, you can restrict people commenting on your post. Yeah. I commented on a post about Alsace Riesling a couple of nights back, um, from someone, where someone wrote something I didn't think was right about Alsace Riesling and I kind of like, you know, I just provided some information, but yeah. I didn't provide more information because it was a post about a specific wine and I said the winemaker can get back to you on much more. I think part of the challenge, right, is that Alsace is a region that has a lot of designations and a lot of, you know, details to it. And some of those intricacies can kind of take away from the magic of what makes a region special. Yeah. If you get bogged down in thinking about the fucking Grand Cruz and yeah. what's allowed in an Edelsvicker, right? Like yeah. then you, you lose all the fun of what makes a region a region yeah. and what makes each producer unique and special. So I don't know. I mean, I would think that like kind of like moving away from just general literature about classifications and more like what is this producer doing what are they about the the personality behind each of these people and what makes them tick you know that 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 to me is way more exciting than just another listicle about whatever the fuck you know yeah the 51 Alsace Grand Cruz I can name them north to south south to north and alphabetically as well so you kind of have to know them but you know Andrew Ostertag who you know was I knew very well two or three years ago he said, people say Alsace is complicated. It's not complicated. It's just complex. You know, it's, it's complex. And you don't need to, you don't need to be uh, at ease with complexity. You, 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 know, don't, you don't need to know everything about everything. I always said that at work, you know, when I was working for someone. You don't need to know everything about everything. And the, uh, the Alsace New Wave, just to go back to natural wine, you know, the, the four producers, uh, Patrick Mayer, Jean-Pierre Freak, Christian Binar, and Bruno Schuller, these guys started making natural wine towards the end of the 90s, you know, 95, 96, 98, and they were still making conventional wine and switched over to, to you know, 100% natural wine production. Before 2005, 2006, in general, there wasn't a lot of natural wine around. And, and Alsace was like that gang of four, which I call them, and two or three other producers starting to produce natural wine. Eric Cam, the reason we've been drinking tonight, he started, he took over his dad's domain in 2005 and his first natural wine was in, his first natural wine was in 2012. So that's an example, you know? So now the, in Alsace, it's gone from four producers producing at that point, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand bottles to 40 producers producing 2 million plus bottles of natural wine in Alsace. And these bottles go all over the planet and all over the planet is well connected now. And it gives a kind of excitement about um, what wines are coming out of Alsace. Um, you know, they, there's, a, there's a discussion in Alsace, you know, mas macerating white grapes helps fermentation. You know, if you, it's, it's <laughs> kind of like a trick, you know, let's macerate it and we're, we're sure of getting a good fermentation. And Als there's a lot of Alsace wines, macerations from Alsace that were kind of orange wines before orange wine kicked in, you know, two or three years ago which was interesting. But there's a discussion in Alsace just now around about, uh, you know, maceration compared to direct press wine. And some of the, some of the fundamentalists in the natural wine movement are much more into the, they kind of look down on macerations. Really? It's like, kind of, it's like an easy, you know, it's an easy way out. It's kind of like an easy way to please people. So. Hmm. That's wild to think about. Yeah. And you're saying maceration specifically with like a uh, white varieties made yeah, well, in an orange variety. style, as opposed to like a Pinot Gris made in a, like, well, like claret style. Yeah. I would, I kind of classify, you know, it's like, it's a kind of, 
pinkish variety, but I'd classify Pinot Gris and Gewurztraminer as white white grape varieties. Mm. The, um, That's so funny to think about. Yeah, before um, with the, that gang of four, with these four key producers, it's, it's, uh, they were the first key producers in Alsace, and also in that first wave of French natural wine producers as well. That was it. Now with these 40 odd producers, there's kind of different associations and different groupings here as well. And they all kind of get on with each other. And it's a good sign that there's there's not just like one uh, tendency of Alsace natural wine. There's kind of several um, different, you know, you can call them associations of different producers, um, you know, working in Alsace wine. And it all helps, you know, I'm a great believer in one plus one plus one equals four and all three. So all this kind of thing helps. As if well. maceration wines have kind of been going off, I know that like the growth in sparkling wine, I think initially it was a lot of cremants that were we were seeing in the market. And now there's also been a movement toward Petnat. But then also red wine as a category has been growing a lot. And so the the if you look at the back in Alsace website, there's a tag called numbers, which actually goes into explaining all the percentages of wine. But that the, in, a, in a, a normal average year, there's 150 million bottles of wine produced in Alsace. A quarter of them, one in four, is a sparkling cremel wine. So the Alsace cremel market is is huge, it's gigantic, you know, it's like it, it's important. And, and why is that? Well, because it was kind of well-made sh- method, you know, wine made in the champagne style, which was a lot cheaper than champagne and people kind of liked it, you know, so it, it kind of, it, it grew well. Um, maybe the grape, maybe the grape varieties, it's easier to make it, you know, they make it mostly with Pinot Blanc uh, and Chardonnay, sometimes a bit of P- uh, Pinot Noir. So Chardonnay is not thought of as an Alsace variety, but there's quite a bit of Chardonnay got grown because it goes into the, the, um, the Cremons. Also, the Pinot Noir percentage in Alsace has grown from about 2 to 10%, but a lot of that goes into the Cremons as well. Uh, so the kind of red wine uh, Pinot Noir, uh, a lot of the growth in, in that area is because is because of the growth, growth in the Cremons. The Cremons are, you know, like a lot of the classic producers, some classic producers don't produce any Cremons. Uh, they kind of like, they, you know, they don't think it's serious wine. Um, you can only imagine what they think of Petnat then. Yeah, no. If they're already turning their nose up at Cremel. The but m- m- many of the classic producers do produce uh, really good Cremel, like someone like Zuslan, you know, who you get people like Pascaline Le, Le Pelti, who loves that. The wines, the Cremel is always in. We sold the shit out of that in my bar back in the day. We fucked with Racine, it. she always had uh, Zuslan Cremel on, on the wine list. The, the whole unnatural wine areas welcome pet nuts can and pet nuts grown to kind of feed it the we had an eric cam pet nut last night in fact he was just labeling these pet nut uh, yesterday which is called something de boule you know i can't remember what it was but the the pet nut proportion many of the Alsace uh, natural wine producers someone like patrick mayer and jean-pierre freak they do it in christian Vina, they do a cremant uh you know a more traditional cremant compared to a pet nut as well. Uh, in, the, in the wine classification, Pinot Noir is not allowed in the Grand Cru, or it's allowed. Be. Yeah, but you can't. You can, um, not yet, but in a couple of years, right? Cru. For example, the Kirschberg de Bar Grand Cru, uh, there's the Klenkenech domain. I think you visited Klenkenech. I drank that Grand Cru out of the barrel. I think whenever it gets bottled, it'll be a uh, GC. Yeah. Yeah. But Pinot Noir, they call it key, you know, yeah, from Kirschberg de Bar. Antoine Kreidenweiss has got a key wine from the Kuschberg de Bar as well. There's only four of the Grand Cru's that have applied or were accepted for application to be named in the and for the classification for Pinot Noir. 
And I don't know, you know, where that dossier really? is. I've heard that it might not be successful at all for getting it. Jesus. It's been going on for about 12 years or so. So I like the Alsace style Pinot Noir. I don't think it's good. I don't think it's interesting for Alsace producers to try to do kind of burgundy-like Pinot Noirs. And last night we had a Pinot Noir from uh, Eric Cam. tasted a Pinot Noir from Eric Cam. I think it was his 20, 2020 Pinot Noir. And it comes from uh, sort of uh, granite soils again, because it's all kind of granite soils around about them back to the view where he comes from. And it's a much kind of lighter, I, I kind of look at it as it's almost like fragile, you know, it's like it's a, it's a, a very kind of delicate um, expression of Pinot Noir. There's no kind of heaviness about it. It's a bit softer on fruit, which I, I like a lot. Well, you also see some co-ferments between Pinot Gris and Pinot Noir, right? Like clandestino. Oh yeah, so that... <clears throat> So that's one of the the the, the kind of you know popular co-ferments in the in the natural wine group Pinot Gris yeah. Pinot Noir. Hey, just a, a quick aside. My f- currently favorite restaurant on the planet is called a place called Le Botaniste in Strasbourg, um, and we they're actually going to Kleinknecht tomorrow morning. Um, and just texted me. Amazing. Just, another coincidence. Then can you make it? Can you come along with us? I don't know. I don't <laughs> think I can. And you went to Clinkinex. So that's like, an I love it. I, you know, it's all about being in the right place at the right time, though. I mean, you know, you're around long enough and, you know, these things just kind of like come together. Right. That's kind of the hope is just being here in France. I'll just stumble into, you know, cool things that happen. Yeah. Coincidences. coincidences are, hey, one, what, if you've got one minute, just one other thing I'd like to say, which I, I uh, hadn't thought of before, but I've just thought of it now. Uh, is on the on the point of outside looking in or inside looking out. I'm actually organising with the Botanist Restaurant uh, California Night, uh, California Natural Wine Night, sometime towards the end of February, where the the chefs, the people that run the restaurant, are looking forward to doing some different type of California, you know, Pacific Rim fusion food. Uh, and we're going to have probably two producers' wines, probably have four or five wines. Uh, and we're just trying to figure out what wines we're going to have. So here's an example of a in Alsace, and we're going to have a California night working with or tasting wines from California producers that I got to know when I was in California. Do you know which producers they're going to be? Yeah, well, we, we think we're going to do uh, Evan Ledowski. Lewandowski. So we tasted some of his wines that are available uh, last week. Um, I wasn't sure if the, the sommelier or the wine director and the, the chef would like them and they love them. So Hell yeah. Uh, I haven't told that you, is it you or Evan? I can't remember what his name. I haven't told him uh, we're going to do that yet. Um, well, he, he was at the, the, the wine, wine fair we organized in 2019. So. Mm-hmm. so that's one of them. We've not decided on the other one yet. There's still three or four different candidates. Amazing. Yeah. It's fun. When is it? <laughs> Late February? Yeah. I might be there. Maybe I'll yeah. come into town. Good. Well, enjoy your dinner tonight. David, thank you again. Appreciate it. And if okay. you remember the name of that place in Beeritz, let me know. Hey, I'll send you, I'll send you all the stuff cool. for Beeritz. Yeah, Appreciate it. Cheers, man. Hey, keep in touch. That is our show. Thank you so much for listening. You can stream every episode of By the Glass wherever you get your audio content. So if you haven't subscribed, please do so. We've got over 50, 60 episodes for you to listen to. And you can find the link to David's Instagram, his website, all in the bio to this episode. So check it out. Give him some likes. And thank you so much for listening. We'll see you with another episode soon.